What is the FDA limit for MRI specific absorption rate or SAR? This is 3.5 to 4 watts per kilogram. Again, the whole body average for SAR is from 3.5 to 4 watts per kilogram. What are some examples where RF pulse is applied without slice select gradient? Now, previously we said slice select gradient is the Z axis. And this is the first line you see on a pulse diagram. Some RF pulses or sequences that we start without the slice select gradient include chemical fat suppression and inversion pulse sequence. So inversion recovery imaging is done without slice select gradient. What are the magnetic properties of water? Water is known to be diamagnetic which means when it's placed in an MRI magnetic field, it is weakly repulsed or weakly repulsed the magnetic field. Another common examples of diamagnetic material include calcium. So water and calcium are the most common examples of diamagnetic material, and they weakly repulse the magnetic field. What are the consequences of going from 1.5 Tesla to a 3.0 or 3 Tesla magnet? A key thing here, the benefit of a three Tesla magnet is increased signal to noise ratio. And the way this happens is because we're using a stronger magnetic field, that means more of the protons will be aligned parallel to the main magnetic field, which results in almost fourfold increase in signal and twofold increase in noise, which means the signal to noise ratio is almost double when we're doing going from 1.5 to 3 Tesla. One drawback in doing a 3 Tesla is the increase in the field strength lead to increased T1 prolongation without changing the T2 prolongation. This means that the T1 signal of brain tissue, where we're looking at gray-white matter differentiation, is less apparent on 3 Tesla compared to 1 Tesla. 1.5 Tesla, again, because of the increased T1 prolongation that we see with the 3 Tesla. Additional things that happened that we previously talked about, for example, we would double the resonance frequency because it depends on the magnetic field zero or the initial magnetic field, and we worsen the chemical shift artifact of the first kind. So worse magnetic field of the uh, chemical shift artifact of the first kind, which is due to spatial misregistration between fat and water within the same vox voxel. And finally, increased susceptibility artifact. So patients with metal implants, you don't want to scan them on a 3 Tesla because of the increased susceptibility artifact. To summarize, while we do have increased signal, we have less differentiation between the white and gray matter in the brain. We have doubling the chemical shift artifact and increase the susceptibility artifact when imaging on 3 Tesla. Common differences between fast spin echo and GRE imaging. Now we'll talk about two main factors or two main differences. The key difference is spin echo uses 180 degree refocus in pulse and that implies the changes because we use a refocusing pulse at 180 degree in fast spin echo imaging or FSE we have a higher specific absorption rate or higher SAR for FSE imaging compared to GRE. Additionally because we have the refocus in pulse we are less sensitive to artifacts or susceptibility artifact because of this refocusing pulse. Also, flow voids would look better. And finally, we don't have chemical shift of the second 
kind. Again, there is no chemical shift of the second kind on fast spin echo imaging, while on gradient imaging, that's where we see chemical shift of the second kind. Second kind is the in and out phenomena, in and out of phase phenomena that we talked about previously. One Tesla is equal to how many Gauss? So one Tesla is 10,000 Gauss. We said that about multiple times. And the magnetic field of the Earth is 0.5 Gauss. Again, magnetic field of the Earth is 0.5 Gauss. And we said one Tesla is 10,000 Gauss. To expand on the refocus and pulse of the spin echo, what are the common functionalities? We said it reduces susceptibility artifact, it reduces or correct chemical shift artifact of the second kind. We said chemical shift artifact of the second kind is the phenomena of in and out of phase imaging and this is different from chemical shift of the first kind where we have spatial misregistration and that's typically seen in the frequency encoding direction. And finally, like we talked about previously, it plays a role in the appearance of flow void, which are very prominent on spin echo sequence compared to GRE image because of that refocus and pulse. What information exists within the central portion of the case space? So the central portion of the case space contains lower spatial frequencies. When we mean by lower spatial frequencies, we're talking about information about the image contrast. Contrast refers to the ability to distinguish between black and white. And so dark and bright line, this is information is considered lower spatial frequency and it is displayed in the center portion of the case space. This information, meaning the contrast images, encodes for the T, T weighting, so T1 versus T2 weighting of the image. Now the Periphery of the K space contains what we call higher spatial frequency information. And that higher spatial frequency contains information about the details of the image. So basically the structure, the sharpness of the borders, these are all considered higher spatial frequency. So if the image has blurred borders or displays some artifacts, uh, such as truncation, this is related to higher spatial frequency, which is stored in the periphery of the K-space. So without the central information of the K-space or the lower spatial frequency, we will not be able to tell the contrast or the weighting of the image. So the structure, the outline of the structure will be visible, but not the gradient, meaning not bright versus dark. You cannot tell that gradient. Now without the periphery of the case space or the higher, higher spatial frequency, we will not be able to distinguish the sharpness or the resolution of these images, meaning the edges will be blurred out if we don't have the peripheral case space information. What are consequences of errors in the case space? Now, if we have error in the case space along the x-axis, we will have vertical lines overlying the image. As you can imagine, it's vertical or in the x-axis, so all the points 
relating to that point will be vertically oriented. So we'll have vertical stripes, meaning from the top to the bottom of the image on the x-axis. If we have error in the y-axis, then we will have horizontal line. Now, bear in mind when we say y-axis, we're referring to the phase encoding gradient, which is the short axis of the image. X-axis is 180 de uh, 90 degrees dependent from the phase encoding gradient. Now, if the error is between the x-axis and the y-axis, we will have diagonal lines, meaning those will not be perpendicular to the y or x-axis, but rather will be at 45 degree. In the next couple of questions, I'm going to take time to discuss how we select a slice on MRI, meaning how is an axial slice on the z-axis is selected. And in order to select a slice, we use two things. We use a gradient selection and or a select gradient and RF pulse. A good way of thinking about gradient selection, if we think of imaging the belly, so starting from the pelvis all the way to the liver, we want to select the slice that contains the belly button. And the way we do this is first we have our gradient select. The gradient select is basically a energy that causes precession of protons at different levels based on how, where they're located on the z-axis. For example, protons at the level of the pelvis will process or rotate at a specific frequency. This frequency keeps increasing as we go away from the pelvis. So let's say the frequency of precession of protons at the pelvis where we started the slice select gradient is 42 megahertz. The 42.6 megahertz is the hydrogen precession of uh, at one Tesla. So we started that gradient and the protons at the slice at the level of the pelvis is 42.6. Then at the upper pelvis, it's 44. And then at the level of the belly button is 46. And at the level of the edge of the liver, it's 48. And then at the end of the abdomen, right at the diaphragm, it's 49. For example. So there is a gradient of precession for protons based on their slice level. At that point, we apply an RF pulse with a specific frequency. Now, that frequency will determine the slice. For example, if we set our RF pulse to be at frequency of 46, then that will activate only the slices where the precession frequency of the proton is 46 megahertz. To summarize slice select, basically we have gradient select or slice select gradient turned on, which causes variance of Larmor frequency along the gradient. And then we transmit an RF pulse. RF pulse frequency sits which slice is being activated based on the Larmor gradient. So we want the Larmor frequency and the RF frequency match and that will activate the protons based on that slice. Now, we said few facts, and we're going to build on them in terms of how to select a specific slice or the slice thinness when we're using select gradient. Now, we know that the slice th thickness is determined by basically the slope of the slice select gradient as well as the transmit RF pulse bandwidth. So, if you can imagine if we have a steep slice select gradient, meaning between one millimeter and the next millimeter in the patient, there is a bigger difference in frequency. So one would be 42, the other one would 
be 45 megahertz, so there is a bigger difference. That means we are able to fine-tune our slice select to be very thin. That's one option of making a thinner slice, is to use a steeper slice select gradient. The other option for selecting a thinner slice is to use a smaller transmit bandwidth. So the transmit bandwidth, instead of containing, for example, 42.3 to 42.9 frequency bandwidth, we can use 42.3 megahertz to 42.4. So having that 0.2 difference will cause the slice or the number of proton activated to be smaller or more specific and gives us a thinner slice. Again, two options for controlling slice thickness. One, if we use a steeper gradient, meaning each slice would be much different than the slice adjacent to it based on the gradient, or we can use a smaller transmit bandwidth. The smaller the transmit bandwidth that we're using or the RF bandwidth that we're using, the smaller our slice, and the steeper our gradient, the smaller our slice. The opposite is true. So the slower gradient, that means we have bigger slice, and the higher the width or the bandwidth of the RF pulse, the thicker the slice. How would an image present with K-space error in the Y-axis? We talked about this before, and it would basically manifest as horizontal line across the image. And we said Y-axis is the phase encoding gradient again. If there is an error in the K-space in the Y-axis, it will manifest as horizontal lines, meaning along the Y-axis, horizontal line. So if you imagine the X and Y direction, the conventional uh, mathematic X and Y, we have an error in the Y dimension, then let's say Y coordinate is 2, and the error would be basically multiple horizontal lines parallel in the X axis. You are shown a pulse diagram, and you have one RF pulse, and then you have multiple refocusing pulses of 180 degree, and they're asking you what sequence are we looking at. Obviously, we said one RF pulse and multiple refocusing pulses of 90 degrees. So the initial RF pulse at 90 degree and the refocusing pulses are 180 degree. Then we're looking at fast spin echo sequence because it's the one that uses multiple 180 degree refocusing pulses. How does time of flight MRI works? Well, first of all, what is time of flight? Time of flight is a sequence of MRI that we use to outline vessels, it's basically angiography of the vessels. And based on knowing that it's an angiography of the vessels, we kind of can presume how it works. Well, number one, we're looking at the vessels only, so we're not interested in soft tissue. For example, if we're doing angiography of the abdomen, we're not looking to see the liver, we're not looking to see the bowel. So what we need to do is we need to suppress all the signal that is coming from anything that is not moving. And that can easily be done using a pre-saturating pulse based on particular properties of the image. So we typically use a short TR and a flip angle, and that will null the signal from all the tissue that is not moving. And we know from flow artifact that the blood coming from slices that have not been suppressed with the will have signal. Now, we have two problems here. One, we want to distinguish between arterial and venous supply because we're looking at either one system at a time. If we're doing both, then it's easy, but usually for angiography, you're either looking for a venogram or arteriogram. 
and you would want to null the signal. How do we null signal of something that is moving? Well, it's easy. We null the signal in the slices outside of our interest. For example, if we are doing an angiography of the abdomen for the arteries, so we want to null the signal in the veins. Where is the blood in the veins coming from? The blood in the veins is coming from the leg. So we can put a pre-saturation pulse outside of the abdomen on the legs and that will null the signal from all the venous blood that is coming into our field of view. On the other hand, if we are doing venogram and we want to null all the signal that is coming from the chest because we want to null the arterial signal and look at the venous system in the abdomen, we will put a pre-saturation pulse focused on the chest that pulse will null all the signal that is coming from the artery and we will only get signal from the venous system in the abdomen. Let's review a concept that we discussed in one of our first episodes in MRI physics, which is T1 relaxation and T2 relaxation. Now, T1 relaxation, remember I said the T1 one looks like an L, so T1 relaxation refers to recovery of the longitudinal magnetization after an RF pulse. What is longitudinal magnetization? Longitudinal magnetization meaning that the proton will spin parallel to the magnetic field and so that they would have to travel almost 180 degree to go back to their original field after an RF pulse. Again, longitudinal meaning they are along the long axis of the RF pulse that we sent and so in order to relax or return to their native longitudinal magnetization, they have to go back 180 degree. Now transverse magnetization is only 90 degrees, and so they will only have to return back to T2 relaxation, which is the transverse magnetization, and that's 90 degrees from the RF pulse. Based on that concept, we can understand why T1 is usually much longer than T2 time, because they have to return 180 degrees instead of 90 degree in transverse magnetization. Now, the second concept relates to the uh, properties of T1 relaxation. When we say that something is T1 short, that means it's bright on T1. So when we say fat, we know fat is bright on T1. And so we know that fat is T1 short or has short T1 time, whereas water is dark on T1, and so it is T1 long. The inverse of this concept is true for T2 imaging. Anything that is T2 short is dark on T2, and anything that is T2 long is bright on T2. Going back and taking the example of fat, we know fat is bright on T2, and so fat is T2 long. So fat is T1 short, and at the same time it's T2 long, that's why it's bright on both T1 and T2 sequences. Water, on the other hand, is T2 long, and so it's bright on T2, but T1 short, and that's why it's dark on T1. They can ask you about muscle signal and how muscle appear on T2. We know that muscle is dark on T2, and because we know that, we can presume that muscle will be short on T2 question that can be asked about longitudinal magnetization and T1 time, they can tell you a T1 period of, let's say, 100 millisecond of whatever material, and they say, when did that material have returned to completely uh, its longitudinal magnetization? Just like half time, 
at five T1 time, meaning five half lifetimes, the material or the protons, 99% of the protons have returned to their longitudinal magnetization that it started with again. So it's half at five times the T1 time is where the material or protons return to their original longitudinal magnetization. Now, how much of the protons after a single T1 time have returned to their longitudinal or original magnetization? This is regardless of T1 or T2 property. So at one T1 period, about 63% of the protons would have returned to their state. And that is true for both the longitudinal and transverse magnetization. The only difference is longitudinal magnetization takes a longer time compared to transverse magnetization.